Dear Father, as we come before you, we pray that we will be free from all distraction for just this half an hour or more to give us eyes that are able to see and ears that are able to hear and hearts which are soft to your instruction. We pray that as we look at your word, you will challenge us to reflect on the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we view life and to have our thoughts become your thoughts. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you find uh, Jesus uh, offensive? Uh, why is Jesus so offensive? Now, over the last few weeks, we've been studying uh, from the book of John, and I think it's really struck me anyway, I'm not sure about you, but as I've been looking at God's Word, looking at the book of John, how offensive uh, Jesus can be, how divisive, and how He really polarizes people. And I think how opposite he is many times to what uh, pastors are today. Because I think for many pastors I've met, one of the greatest sins is to offend people. Right? That the, you know, our aim as pastors, for many pastors they feel, is to fill the church and to bring in as many people. And they're very careful not to say anything divisive or polarizing or offensive. I remember when I was uh, at my previous church, there was this lady I was talking to. And uh, she scolded me. She says, would you stop doing that? And I'm like... What do you mean? What am I doing? What am I doing? He says, every time I ask you a question, you always pause for a second to make sure that you choose the right word so that you don't offend me. Now, I'm not saying that uh, I, I'm, I should be offensive or we should be offensive as Christians or as, a, as an excuse to be rude. But isn't it interesting that as, you, as we've been going through the book of John, how offensive Jesus is? I don't know whether you notice it, but if you look at God's word, if you look at what Jesus is doing, he is offensive. So why is Jesus so offensive? Why must Jesus offend and polarize and divide people with his answers? Now today, as we've been uh, looking at uh, chapter 6, we are continuing what we saw last week. And he is, uh, if you look at the slide here, he's being followed by a group of people who at this point in time seem to be thoroughly and wholly convinced that Jesus is someone worth following. Right, they, they followed Jesus on boats across from this side of the lake to the other side. Uh, they saw a great miracle where Jesus fed the whole crowd with five loaves and two fish. And then they followed him back and then they found themselves back to Capernaum and they were looking and looking for Jesus. So here were people who were thoroughly and absolutely wanting to find Jesus and to listen to Jesus. But as we come to this section in verse 41, Jesus starts being offensive to them. In verse 41, it says, At this, the Jews, or the Jewish crowd that was there, began to grumble about him because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Now this is linked back to what we learned last week because when they found the crowd, sorry, when the crowd found Jesus and we come and see what's happening, in verse 32, Jesus had told the crowd, right, after the feeding of the 5,000 of that uh, miraculous feeding, he said, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And in verse 31, Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be 
thirsty. Now up until this stage, the crowd still is very enthusiastic about Jesus. They, they're coming to him. Look, they even say to him, give us this bread. Give us this bread. We want to know more. We want this bread. Now the problem is, is that they are expecting Jesus to give them bread. Like the bread that he just gave them on the other side of the lake. Like the manna in the desert, like the forefather Moses gave to them. But Jesus says that actually the bread that he brings, the real bread that he brings, is himself. I am the bread from heaven. I am the one who comes down to heaven. Believe in me. If you believe in me, you will have eternal life. And verse 40 is what really sets them off, isn't it? Just before this, because it says, at this, the Jews began to grumble, right? So at what point did they start turning against Jesus? Well, in verse 40, he says, it is my Father's will that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life and I'll raise them up at the last day. And this is where the crowd starts feeling very uncomfortable, they start feeling like maybe maybe our enthusiasm is a bit misplaced. They start grumbling because they say, well, how can this Jesus be so great? Because we know his father, we know his mother, we know where he comes from. How can he say that he is the bread of life? How can he say that he has come down from heaven? How can he say that he is from God? Now, if, uh, if I was Jesus, not that I'm Jesus, I'm sure if you were Jesus and you were there, I guess a way to calm the crowd down and to placate the crowd and to try to get them to understand what I'm saying would be, well, no, no, look, guys, you're not really understanding what I'm saying, right? No, no, no. Right, yeah, no, Jesus is, you know, Joseph is my father and, and Mary is my mother, but actually, really, I was, uh, you know, like we just read in the Apostles' Creed, right? It, it was the Holy Spirit, you know, that, that I was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Right? I mean, Joseph really is, well, he's sort of like my stepfather, right? My real father is God. But Jesus doesn't do that, right? He, he doesn't try to, uh, you know, calm them down. In fact, he, he actually challenges them even more. He challenges them about their understanding of who he is. And what does he say? Well, he says some really, really radical things. He says, stop grumbling among yourselves. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from Him comes to me. Now, don't you think that if we were not really Christian, if we just came to the Bible and we read this for the first time, that this might be slightly offensive and slightly divisive and slightly polarizing. It's a bit like me coming to church one day, right? And uh, one day I come to church and I stand before you and I say, I am God. Believe in me and you will have holy, you know, you will live forever and ever. And then all of you say, but, but how can that be, Andrew? You know, we've known you for so long and all this sort of stuff. And I'll say, if you listen to God, you'll believe who I am, and that's it. I mean, you'd find that a bit over the top, right? I mean, a bit unreasonable and illogical. I don't think that's what Jesus is really trying to do here, right? Jesus is not trying to be totally unreasonable or illogical. 
He's actually challenging them to understand who he really is. Now we can come to this passage and say, well, you know, it's just a theological point about how, you know, it's about predestination. I know some of your Bible study groups, that's what we talk about. It's like, oh, you know, it's just predestination, right? But why does Jesus say this? Why is he challenging them in this way? Well, he quotes to them from Isaiah chapter 54, right? Where in Isaiah 54, which is up here, it's actually a prediction of what will happen in the last days. And the last days, it says, all your sons will be taught by the Lord and great will be your children's peace and righteousness you'll be established Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far from move. It will not come near you. Okay, so this passage that Jesus quotes here in John chapter 6 verse 45 actually looks forward to the day where God will bring in His kingdom. And you notice that how God brings in His kingdom is to teach His people. And how will He teach His people? They will learn from Him. They will have insight. They will be able to be illuminated and to have revelation from God. So what Jesus is actually saying is not to give them just a theological point, but to challenge them on how they respond to Him. And how are they to respond to Jesus? Well, instead of grumbling, they are not to grumble, but to learn and to listen and to be instructed by God. Now what does that mean, to to be taught by God, to learn from God, to hear God? Well, I don't think Jesus means, okay, you all need to go back now and read your Old Testament, right? Or go to the synagogue or whatever and read your Bible and learn about me. But I think that in the context, in the timing of what is happening here is, he's saying, look, allow yourself to be taught, to listen, to learn from what you've seen. So remember, this is the crowd who had witnessed the healing miracles. This was a crowd who had seen the feeding miracles. Okay, so in the earlier part, chapter 6, Remember, the crowd had followed him, first of all, across the river because of the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. And then at the end of the miracle, they wanted to make him king and they recognized him as prophet because of the miraculous feeding signs that he had done. So what Jesus is really saying is instead of grumbling, see the signs Allow the miracles that they had witnessed, allow the feeding miracles, allow the, the, the healing miracles to, to illuminate your thinking and to be taught by God and to learn from God what it means about my identity. Because at the end of the day, to be drawn to Jesus is not something where we just sit back and we, uh, you know, we, we lie down in our couches and we say, okay, God, draw me to Jesus now. Make me come to Jesus now and I'll just sit here and do nothing. But I think that the way that God draws us to Jesus and brings us to Jesus is where we allow ourselves to be taught to learn and to hear from God and to be convinced of Jesus' identity. And that's why the miraculous things that Jesus did are called signs. They are pointing to who Jesus was. But the problem was for the crowd, instead of learning from the signs, they were starting to, to grumble against God. Now, I think that this is a very important lesson for us. Because if we want to come to Jesus, to allow God to draw us to Jesus, the way that we come to Jesus is to be taught and to hear and to listen to God teaching us. 
Now, part of coming to God is not being teachable in the sense of, you know, we go to ITE or poly or JC or uni, and, you know, we're very good at doing exams. But it's where we are willing to come to Jesus and to learn from what He's done and to be convinced of His true identity. That He is from heaven. He is the bread of life. Now, I remember I had a relative of mine, and uh, this relative of mine is from Australia. And uh, when he came to, to Singapore, this was many, many years ago, he kept insisting that, uh, you know, the Airbus A380, when it first came, right, the very big airplane, was a very big deal. So he kept insisting that Qantas, you know, Qantas is the Australian national carrier, that Qantas was the first uh, carrier in the world to fly the A380, right? But I said, no, no, I don't think so, you know, because I read, I read in the Straits Times that actually SIA was the, the first airline in the world to fly the A380, right? But he said, no, 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 it's Qantas, I'm sure it's Qantas, you know, you're wrong, you're wrong. And I said, well, you know, you should go and check it up. But I think up to today, he still believes that Qantas is the first airline that flew the A380. Why is it he didn't believe what I said? It was because he preferred to believe something which was more agreeable to himself, something which was convenient to his own framework of the world. It, it, was, it, was, it was an inconvenient truth right, which I was trying to tell him. And I think it's the same thing for the crowd and it's the same thing for many people. It is much easier to believe what is convenient to believe. It is easier for us to to keep the framework that we already have rather to be challenged by the person of Jesus Christ. For the crowd, they were willing to come to Jesus for the food, yes. They were willing to come for bread. They were willing to come for feeding. They were willing to make Him king, prophet. But it was too inconvenient to believe that He was from heaven and that He was the bread of life that they had to believe in for eternal life. Now, as we will see, Jesus keeps going on. And he pushes the envelope of their understanding even further, right? Whether they like it or not. He says something like, No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, or truly, truly, or amen. The one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, as we look at this, Jesus wants to tell them, he's, he's almost like beseeching them very seriously and saying, look, it doesn't matter what you think the truth is, what your sincerity is, how sincerely you believe something to be true or not. I'm telling you truly, truly, this is the truth. This is what the truth is, whether you want it or not. You can grumble all you like, you can be unhappy with it, but I am the one who has seen the Father. I am the bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. And the stakes are very high. The stakes are very high because... This bread, whether you choose to accept it or not, is the only way to have eternal life. There is no other way to eternal life. Now we must remember again that uh, when this was happening, right? So this, uh, as we saw last week in verse 3, chapter 6, 
that this was happening during the, the time of the Passover feast. And during the Passover feast, they would remember things like Moses and uh, moving through the wilderness to the promised land. And of course, they would remember God giving them manna during those 40 years in the wilderness. And I think for the Jews, they thought that Moses was a very, very great man. Right? He was like the forefather of the nation. Okay, Think of Lee Kuan Yew, except much bigger than that because there's a spiritual significance to it. And, and even more, they remembered how privileged that they were that God fed their forefathers for 40 years with this miraculous super food, supernatural food, the manna. But what Jesus says is quite offensive again. Because what he's saying is, as great as Moses was, as great as the manna was, as supernatural as the manna was, it was no different from the bread that you could buy at the NTUC. Because even though it was supernatural in its production, but yet in its, in its effect, when they ate the bread, they were still hungry tomorrow. When they ate the bread, they still died. It was supernatural in its production. Yes, it came down from heaven, but in its effect, when they ate the bread, it was just very normal. It was very natural. You still died. You still got hungry. It was just normal food. But Jesus is very different because here's the bread which anyone may eat and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Right. I mean, if they were offended, they would be even more offended now, isn't it? Because here was an absolute claim to which there was no other way to eternal life. Now, I think that hearing what Jesus says, it is a very, very tight, narrow, and exclusive way to eternal life. And, and it's very tight and narrow and confining, don't you think? I, I think that's why it's so offensive to people. Because Jesus is saying that there is only one way to eternal life, and that way is through Jesus. He is the only bread of life. It's very constricting, you know, it's like being in a tight box or a, a shirt that is too tight. It feels uncomfortable. And I'm sure for the crowd it would have felt very uncomfortable because for them... For as great as Moses would have been, as, as great as the manna would have been, it is all nothing. Nothing compared to Jesus. That's what he's saying. And it would have felt so uncomfortable, so constricting, and so, so offensive to them. But I think for ourselves too, when we hear the claims of Jesus, I guess it's kind of second nature to us, especially many of us who have been Christians for many years, we hear this and we think, well, yeah, okay, we can listen to Jesus. It doesn't seem very offensive to me, but actually, it is very, very offensive. He is making an absolute claim that I am the only way to eternal life. There is no other bread out there. He is the only bread of life. It is very uncomfortable because it means that there is absolutely no room for me to save myself. I cannot save myself. The only way to be saved is true, Jesus Christ. It's very uncomfortable because it means that no, there is no other way for anybody else to be saved. It means that other people, people from maybe other beliefs, 
even the Jews, they can't be saved without Jesus. It means that friends and family members, loved ones, who sincerely believe in another truth, they also cannot be saved. See, it's very uncomfortable what Jesus is saying, very offensive. It's so absolute. It is so... It's just all in or there's nothing. Now, if Jesus is uh, offending them already, he goes them to offend some more, isn't it? Because in verse 52, if it wasn't enough that he talks about himself being the bread of life, he begins to offend them in a much more radical way. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my flood, my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, what Jesus says here is, is, is that you're either all in or you're all out. Go big or go home. He says here very clearly, right? Very truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Now, the Jews here, the listeners, uh, they were very offended. They were like, what on earth are you talking about? How can we eat your flesh? Are we like cannibals? Right? What is this image for? Is it for shock value? You know, sometimes you go to, uh, not that I go see horror movies very often, but you do see the advertisements all over the place. Like, you know, even when you go watch a normal Disney movie, there's oh, advertisement for a horror movie. Anyway, so then, you know, you see all this blood and gore and everything else, right? So why is it there? Why does Jesus use these really bloody images? Is it for shock value like in a horror movie? No, it's not because he wants to shock us or shock the crowd. But the images of flesh and blood actually have a religious symbolism. There's a religious image to it. It's not a shock image, it's a religious image. See, again, this is the, the Passover time. Okay? And, and during the Passover, um, the Jews would celebrate how God saved them out of Egypt. And he saved them through the death of the Passover lamb, where they would kill the lamb and put the blood on the doorposts so that God would not bring death to their firstborn eldest child, but instead bring death to the Egyptians instead. And every year, they would, they would practice this. They would remember what happened. And how would they remember it? Well, in Ezra chapter 6, on the 14th day of the first month, they celebrated the Passover. 
And what did they do? Well, after they had slaughtered the Passover lamb, they would eat the Passover lamb. And then the next slide in Exodus. Alright, so this is what happened. Uh, during the actual event, they would slaughter the Passover lamb and they would dip this hyssop or like these uh, branches into the blood and into the door, the ba- into, the blood, into the basin and put the blood on the top and the sides of the door frame. And no one has to go out until the morning. And when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, you will see the blood on the top and the sides of the door frame or pass over the doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance between you and your descendants. When you enter the land, the Lord will give you, as He promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you, then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when He struck down the Egyptians. See, the, 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 the words flesh the words blood, they are meant for the crowd to recall the Passover lamb. And what does blood mean in the Bible? See, blood is always a picture of violent death. Right? When Cain and Abel, the first murder ever happened, right? What happened? God said, your brother's blood is calling out from the ground. See, blood is a sign of violent death. And the Passover lamb is a sign of where the lamb dies violently as a substitute to give life. And that's what Jesus is using these images for. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life. And why? Because he is the Passover lamb. He is the one who gives himself to take judgment as a substitute to give life to people. And that's why in chapter 1, uh, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, and that explains why Jesus needs to be so offensive to people. Because without the Passover lamb, without the lamb taking away your sin, there is no life. There's absolutely no life. There is no other way. You cannot find life on your own without the blood and the flesh of Jesus. And that's why the danger of grumbling is so real. Because by grumbling and turning away from the flesh and blood of Jesus, there is no substitute for them and there is no eternal life for the crowd. Now, the last part is very, very sad, isn't it? Because on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching, who can accept it? And aware of his disciples grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he, is, he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. 
And then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he met Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Now, I think one of the most uh, discouraging things here is actually the change of the people that Jesus is speaking to. If you look from verse chapter 6 right from the beginning all the way to verse 59, it's always the crowd, the crowd, the crowd. Right? These are the people who had come and followed him and maybe they enjoyed eating and they enjoyed the miracles. But look at what happens in verse 60. In verse 60, it is the disciples, the disciples who find it hard to hear Jesus. It is the disciples who end up leaving him. It is the disciples who say, who can accept this? So, even the disciples, even those people who had been following Jesus before they went to Galilee, before the healing, before the eating miracles, they started to feel offended by Jesus. And they started to leave Jesus. See, they were, in the end, unable to go past their own understanding and to learn and to hear and to accept teaching from Jesus and to hear and listen to God's instruction. But the difference was that the 12, the remaining 12, or actually only the remaining 11, because one of them would betray him, they would not leave Jesus even though they found the words of Jesus offensive. Right, they found it offensive too. Look at what Simon Peter says. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Right? Simon Peter doesn't say, well, actually, we don't, we don't find it so offensive what you're saying. He's saying, no, it is offensive. It is difficult to accept. It is hard to accept. But where else have we to go? Because you are the only way to eternal life. You are the only one who is the Holy One of God. See, at the end of the day, being a Christian doesn't mean that we find the words of Jesus easy to understand or easy to listen. It can be difficult to listen to and it can be hard and it can be offensive, it can be constrictive, it can be uncomfortable. But in the end, what choice do you have? Because He is the only one who can take you to eternal life. He is the only one who is the Holy One of God. We may not like to hear that we are sinners, dreadful sinners. We may not like to hear that people close to us, friends and family, are lost without Jesus. We, not, we may not like to hear that other people who sincerely believe other things are wrong. These are hard things to accept. Maybe offensive things, very offensive things, but where else have we to go? Because only Jesus is the Holy One of God. He is the Christ. He is the bread from heaven. He is the one who is the perfect Passover lamb. Where else have we to go? I remember um, when I was younger, I found it hard to become a Christian many times. You know, Because the demands of Jesus are so demanding. He demands all or nothing. You are all in with Jesus or there is nothing. You either go big on Jesus or you go home. There is no halfway with Jesus. He is 100% the way to eternal life or He is nothing to you. You cannot be 
following Jesus in half measures. Now, I remember uh, reading about this guy, C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis is a very famous author. Uh, and um, he wrote about how uh, when he was 17 years old, he wrote to, to his friend. And he says, I, I believe in no religion. There's absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. But then 15 years later, uh, after he went to Oxford, I think he was a... Uh, you can actually become a Christian at Oxford. That's interesting. All right. So he says, you must picture me alone in that room at... Uh, I, I think there's a special way of pronouncing this. Magdal- Magdalene or something, right? Night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my word, my work, sorry, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, and perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. See, when we come to Jesus, it can be difficult. It can be hard. Because the demands... And the words of Jesus are so absolute and demanding. But it doesn't matter if we find it hard. It doesn't matter if we find it offensive. We can still come to Him. Because we see, even most reluctantly and, reject, uh, and, and dejectedly, that He is the one from heaven. That He is the bread of life. That He is the Passover lamb. And in Him are truly the words of eternal life. And that there is no other way or other one. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we know that the demands, the words of Jesus are just so absolute that it grates at us. It grates at our thoughts of many ways of being saved. It grates and and, and it's annoying and irritating because it says of how we cannot save ourselves, it really is constricting because it tells us that even things that other people sincerely believe in are wrong. And we don't want to offend people, but dear Father, help us to see that the words of Jesus are true. That He is the One from Heaven, the One who has come to this earth. He is sent by You. And He is the bread of life that whoever eats of Him will never die but be raised up on the last day. Dear Father, help us as we reflect on Your Word today to not be like that crowd that day, the disciples that day, for whom this hard, hard teaching was too difficult to accept and they walked away. Help us to see that even when at our most discomforted at our most uncomfortable that we must keep holding on to Jesus because he is the only one who can save us he is the only one with the words of eternal life and indeed he is the only son of yours and that no matter how uncomfortable we may be no matter how restricted we feel we will always be in Christ and living for him And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.